And so we come to the Bible reading, which is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verses 37 to 62. And first we read of Jesus healing a demon-possessed boy, and then Jesus predicting his death the second time. And we read, The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met Jesus. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions, so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him, and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. While everyone was marvelling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Listen carefully to what I am about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of man. But they did not understand what this meant, and it was hidden from them. So they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. An argument started among the disciples, as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me, for it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. Then they meet Samaritan opposition. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. And now the cost of following Jesus. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but 
Uh, First, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts a hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. May the Lord help us understand the meaning of these words. We're going to continue the studies that uh, Tim and Jack have been giving us in Luke. And it's Luke chapter 9, as Keith has just read to us, verses 37 to 62. And it would help if you could open your Bibles and follow. I'm going to try and weave in some leprosy mission uh, information as well. Just before our reading starts, uh, they were up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And this marks the start of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, the end of his ministry in Galilee and the start of the journey to Jerusalem. And in, in verse 51, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. They had been up on this mountain. They had had an amazing experience. And it was an experience that was going to motivate them for the rest of their life. And Peter records it. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. The work that God had for the apostles after Jesus had died and was uh, resurrected and went up to heaven, needed the motivation of that Mount of Transfiguration. It was a very, very special place for them. And although we weren't on a mountain, five and a half thousand feet is quite high enough, it was a very special place for us as well. Even though we started with cold showers, And each day we had to climb 354 steps up to the hospital at high altitude. It was a very, very special experience for us. The disciples wanted to stay there. Verse 33, they said, let's build a tent for us. Let's build three of them. Let's stay here. But you can't stay on that very special mountain peak experience. And we couldn't either. We had to come down. The challenge for us as we came down and returned back to our everyday lives was for us to live our everyday lives like the everyday lives we had seen in that hospital. The staff serving with love, humility, skill, practicing and showing the living, loving Jesus. There was a man of age 64 who had just been uh, treated for leprosy in the hospital and was waiting to be discharged. He said to me, indicating the whole of the hospital, this is the Holy Land. Why is Israel called the Holy Land? It's because Jesus walked and talked and loved and lived in Israel. And that's exactly what Prem felt about Anandaban. Jesus was walking and living and loving there every day. This is the Holy Land, he said. The disciples needed to come down. 
they needed to walk with Jesus to Jerusalem to learn more and to equip them to serve. There were five lessons for the disciples and five lessons for us as well. Let's look at each of them. They came down from the mountain and they were confronted with other disciples' failure. A man had brought his son, please heal him. And they had failed. And Jesus went and healed that boy. Matthew and Mark tell us that the disciples then asked Jesus, why couldn't we do it? And Jesus answered. And the answer was about faith. It was about prayer and fasting. Where does faith come from? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Where does faith come from? I believe it comes from knowing. I have known Pauline for 54 years and I have complete trust and faith in all that she does. Faith comes from knowing. Faith in God comes from knowing him. And how do we get to know God? We get to know God through prayer, spending time in his presence. We get to know God through study, looking at his word, where he's recorded his nature. This is what I'm like, he says, as we read the Bible. We get to know him too through worship. Just this morning, I read in uh, my daily bread. It's easy enough to thank and praise God when he answers prayer or works a miracle for us. But how often, how sincerely and how enthusiastically do we worship God for who he is? Just for who he is. And who he is is about knowing him. We saw this every day. The slide that you're looking at starts with uh, um, our leader leading us in the studies of the miracles of Jesus. We were getting to know Jesus and how he felt in certain situations. On the bottom right is where the staff and the patients meet each day to worship and to pray. And we need to discipline our lives if we are to increase in faith to increase our knowledge of him. The next story that we read uh, in verses 44 to 48. Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. An argument started amongst the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child. Who is going to be the greatest? Here in our picture, on the top left, is uh, an urban self-help group in Kathmandu. The lady I'm going to talk to you about isn't in that photograph. We couldn't get a picture of her. She wouldn't stand still long enough and she kept hiding. 
and uh, we then learned why that was. Uh, the lady in red on the second inn from the left was brought with her husband from Pokhara, some many miles to the west, into Kathmandu. She had an 11-day-old child, and her husband left her. And the number of times that we met ladies who had been uh, abandoned by their husbands made me ashamed to be a man. But her husband had left her on the streets with an 11-year-old child, uh, an 11-day-old baby. The lady who you can't see, her name's Mithu. She was in the habit of going out in the street. Although she is an ex-leprosy sufferer, she was out on the streets every day looking for needy people. And she found this lady and she brought her back into the self-help group. When I said to her, that was a wonderful thing to do, she said, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. She was content to serve and not to be prominent. The nurses there, um, just two of them, there are many more, but when you see them kneeling at the foot of a patient, taking off dirty bandages to expose ulcers, then it reminds you of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Whoever wants to be greatest must be the least. That's a lesson that I need to learn and we all need to learn. Being inclusive. The verses tell us that the priority is the work of Jesus, not who does it. In Philippians uh, chapter 1 and verse 18, Paul is... giving us a principle. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And that's, again, the lesson of this story. Jesus says, whoever is not against us is for us. We are blessed in Horsham with our strong unity in churches together. We're blessed in Brighton Road Baptist Church too with a strong unity in this fellowship. The disciples said to Jesus, he's not one of us. What a terrible thing. I believe that the problems in Paris over the weekend arise because of this attitude, not one of us. And the disciples were very guilty of this. And Jesus puts that down and he says, the priority is the work of Jesus. The picture is the place we stayed in, in the training centre. And that training centre, whilst we were there, uh, the first week had a whole series of surgeons from all over the world, Christian and non-Christian, leprosy workers and non-leprosy workers, and they were being trained in surgery techniques uh, by Dr Indra, the chief surgeon at the hospital. 
The important thing is not who does it, but that it is done. <coughs> the next lesson is how to deal with rejection. They went to go into a village, and the village wouldn't have them. And the disciples wanted to call fire down on them, James and John, that is. But Jesus didn't. He went to another village. Rejection, exclusion, is an everyday experience for leprosy sufferers. And Pauline's going to tell us stories of these two. The lady on the left, her name is Barbati. I shall never, ever forget her. She had no fingers, and she was knitting. How, I do not know. But she had the most beautiful hats and all sorts of things that she'd knitted. And it was wonderful to see her. She had been at Anandaban seven months. She lives in the far west of Nepal, a long way away. And she was only 13 when she caught leprosy. She, had, she has never been to school. And so she was out in the fields working. But when leprosy began to be obvious to others and she found her hands and arms were weak and she couldn't do the work... And when people realised what was wrong with her, she was told to stay at home and not come outside again. And she actually spent 11 years virtually inside. And she said if she ventured outside, the older people were terrified of her. And it was only the one or two people who'd been educated in the village who helped her at all. Can you imagine that? Somebody from the age, through their teenage years, being inside. She felt that this was a punishment for her for something she had done in a previous life. And she had a very unhappy, she was very unhappy and extremely depressed. But she heard a radio program. And on the radio program, it mentioned about a leprosy mission, a health program, and it it mentioned that a doctor was going to come to Dagandi, which was an overnight bus journey away from her village. She heard this, and she managed to persuade somebody in the village to carry her to the bus, take her to the doctor, and as soon as the doctor saw her, she was referred to Anandaban. At Anandaban, she has had her hands and feet, obviously had the multidrug therapy, she's had her hands and feet treated. And, as I say, someone has taught her to knit. She's also learnt how to make toys and jewellery. And while recovering, she studied and has learnt to read and write and is numerate. And she is determined that when she goes back home, she will open a shop so that she can be independent. But she was really rejected. But while she has been at Anandaban the most wonderful thing happened. She was been unable to walk for seven years. And whenever she moved around at an end of end, she was on a sort of stool with casters on that she would sort of push herself around on. But when we were there, the two brothers that Ian told you about had made her two wonderful pairs of boots. And she was able to put them on. And with the help of her friend and a big stick, we were by the physiotherapy department and suddenly she came along walking. Her face was radiant. I cannot tell you. It was just wonderful to see the joy and pleasure in her face and I shall never ever forget it. So once rejected, she has 
hope for the future through the workers in Enderman. And the other man I'm going to tell you about is older. Barberty, by the way, is now 26. This man, Ramashar, is the second one in on that picture with the check shirt. He's going like this with his hands because he's singing at that point. He is 63 years old and he caught leprosy at the age of three. And he remembers that nobody would ever play with him because they obviously people in the village realised there was something wrong with him and if he went out to play, all the other children were brought back in. So it wasn't until the age of 11 that he had Dapsone treatment. Multidrug therapy hadn't been discovered by the time he, he needed it. So he, what he was, did have the medicine and while he was in his village and he wasn't able to work, he heard two leprosy patients speaking. He didn't know they had leprosy, but they were talking about how they had been to Kathmandu, to the clinic at Patton, and how well they had been t- treated. And so he decided he would walk to Kathmandu, and he told us he walked a long way to the hospital, and for the first time in his life when he got there, he felt that somebody loved him and that somebody cared for him. And he has had... T- Again, treatment on his hands and feet. And while we were there, he was going to have eye surgery. But what he really wanted to tell us was that he had learnt about being a Christian while he was at the hospital. And that a doctor, Dr Harris, and he spoke to us as if we knew Dr Harris. We don't. He wasn't at the hospital then. And he uh, told him about being a Christian. And he decided to become a Christian and was baptised. And he loves singing. And he's become a composer and he's composed a song about every book of the Bible. So he wanted to sing us a song, so we said, well, just about one book. And he sang us the song about the book of Daniel. And that's what he's doing there, where you can see him with Cassis, the leader of the self-care, group, self-care unit. They both got lovely voices, and they sang all about Daniel to us. So there he is in the self-care unit, learning to live with the effects of leprosy, and now he has a hope for the future. So how do you deal with rejection? You move on. You don't look back, you move on, as these two have given us the examples, and as Jesus did. He went to another village. He moved on. Accepting the cost. There were three men in the story in Luke. Um, And Jesus points out that it can be costly to put him first. It can be costly to follow. On the right, the surgeon on the right-hand side is Dr. Indra. He is the leading surgeon in the world for leprosy reconstruction. He could be earning a fortune anywhere else, but he is happy to be serving God in that situation. Deanna, the research scientist, uh, the American girl, she could be earning an enormous amount of money, but she is happy in the deprivation. She describes some of the living conditions that uh, they all have to put up with in Kathmandu, Um, but she is happy paying that cost. The next man said uh, he needed to look for his family. But it might mean, following Jesus, might mean 
at disappointing your family. On the left-hand side, the man there is Shavaka. He was the chief administrator when we went to Anandaban five years ago. He is now the director in charge of the leprosy mission Nepal. He's a Christian. He comes from a Christian family. And when he told his father he was going to work at Anandaban leprosy hospital, his father advised him against it. You don't want to do that. You don't want to be associated with leprosy. It's not a good career move. But Shovaka felt called to do that job. And it might mean disappointing your family, but follow Jesus, he says. And the last man said, let me go back and <clears throat> say goodbye. Jesus said, no, it's urgent. When you hear the call to follow, go for it. Why? Because it's the best ever calling in the world. When Jesus calls, go for it. Don't look back, look forward, look up to Jesus. And the writer to the Hebrews just summed that up so well. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith.